I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's November 5th, 2022, or as I like to call it, Airmail Weekly Delivery Day. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And you are listening to Airmail's one and only podcast for the moment, Morning Meeting. Ashley, welcome to the November and it's the season of the leaf blowers. Speak for yourself, my friend. It's season of holiday decorations here in the UK. It's like I've already been invited to like my first holiday party. It's on November 10th. Yeah, I think a couple of years, everyone's a lot of pent up demand for holiday parties, so... Sure, calendars are started. You'll get into that trap again of like feeling anxiety, like being double booked and having to run across town to make merry at different places. But if anyone can handle it, you can. Well, there's something to be said for the holiday crunch. In New York, it's December because we have Thanksgiving, right? So the whole November lead up is just for that. Here, we start holiday celebrations in November, which perhaps is a good thing. So instead of going to four parties a night for three weeks, you go to two parties a night for eight weeks. I don't know. We shall see. We will keep you all fully updated on this transition. And speaking of transitions, we have a great show today. We have Stuart Heritage joining us from the UK where he has the inside story on a strangely timed biography of Liz Truss, the former prime minister. We also have Airmail's beauty and wellness editor, Linda Wells, reporting on the bizarre new trend in weight loss slash weight management, which is hiring a tough love coach. And finally, we have a special treat. Liberty Ross will roll on by to tell us about Flipper's Boogie Palace in London. So lots to talk about, Ashley. Where do you want to begin? Well, we're mostly fun and games here, Michael, right? I mean, the front page of the paper. <laughs> we is- are, because I'm usually sweating it here. But if it's fun and games, good. Now I, I know what I'm doing. So tell me, what do we got? Okay. It has been such a crazy week in the news. I have found solace in one place, which is to say auction catalogs. Did you see that Joan Didion's belongings are coming up for auction in a few weeks? I did see that. So are you going to like go for her Cartier watch or what are you going to go for? to say like some of the her things I kind of liked like I wouldn't buy her paperbacks but she has a, a great collection of art from people like Bryce Martin and Cy Twombly and some cool sketches and things and I liked her glass collection and she also had a great if you are into a certain romantic look of China which I am like I found her dishware kind of fun like, I was charmed by the dishware I'm sorry to say it so if I were in New York right now I would be bidding on that dishware and losing it but still well on the other side of the auction spectrum there was a little piece of news that, that popped this week which is if you're a fan of E.T. the movie, Julian's Auctions and Turner Classic Movie, they've gotten together on the 40th anniversary of E.T. to auction off the model for E.T. If I remember, it was a pre-CGI film and kind of like Jaws, they had to create a figure to sort of move around on stage at different times. So it's going to go up for auction on the 17th of December at the Icons and Idols Hollywood Auction in Beverly Hills. It's expected to go for three million, maybe more. So it's a different side of pop culture if you want something, a little friend to sit around with a glowing finger and make you feel better about yourself. 
Michael, I feel like we've really started this show with this superfluous stuff. We really need to get to the most important subject of our time, which is season five of The Crown coming out on November 9th. Is it safe to say that this is the television event of the year for us? It's safe to say that if I were Peter Morgan and the creators of the show, they have done a masterful job of marketing this with controversy. Like, the Thoriel family doesn't want you to see it. They're going to be really upset. What are they going to do to Princess Diana? Harry's going to be upset. William's going to be upset. Nothing sells like controversy around the launch of, of a film or a television series. So I can't imagine this thing not setting big records for when people tune into it. But look, as Stu Heritage said last week, what's fascinating about this is it's getting up into times most of us have lived through. The first season was ancient history, but now we're getting up into things that we all remember and we're going to sort of be experiencing it that way. So I'm going to be buckled in for it. How about you? Are you kidding me? I mean, if live blogging were still a thing, we would be live blogging this entire season. I have to say, I think when even Dame Judi Dench is incensed and up in arms about a historical portrayal, you know you have seized on a cultural touchstone, and that's what this is. I think the royal family should be happy about this in general, because ultimately it's good marketing for them. People care about them. It makes them seem sexier and more interesting, frankly, aside from just tablet fodder. Yeah, it might actually make people feel sympathetic towards them. They're being attacked. Who knows? But I mean, I think it's win-win-win all around for everyone, for Peter Morgan and the creators of The Crown for the royal family. But as we reported last week, the prince formerly known as Charles, now known as King Charles, he's going to be in for a rough ride this season because this is Squidgy Gate. This is the dissolution of his marriage with Diana. But maybe people will end up feeling sympathetic towards him as well. As a person trying to navigate a really weird family with a lot of dysfunction, which is what it all comes down to at the end. This will not be the last you will be hearing from us on the topic. We will have live updates from The Crown every week until further notice. Happy Crown season to all. Speaking of The Crown, I think it's just time to let's get Stu on here because it's the natural transition to Liz Truss, who, let's remember, she shook the Queen's hand and, what, 48 hours later, the Queen was dead. So, and now Liz is back in the news for a strangely timed new book, right? Yes, indeed. It's never too early to attempt to rewrite history. And who better than Stu Heritage to tell us exactly why that is? Stu is a writer at large for Airmail, except he's not that at large because we have him on the podcast every week, it seems. One of our favorite people, certainly one of our favorite writers and thinkers. Welcome, Stu Heritage. Stu, we made it one week without changing prime ministers. Hooray. Yes, yeah, it's it's unprecedented in modern times. <laughs> but for some reason, we can't stop talking about Liz Truss. Tell us why. Because the book that was supposed to come out to herald the start of her premiership has been published a week late, a week after she resigned. It's called Out of the Blue, written by two political journalists. And it's probably the most badly timed book in living memory. Who's going to buy it? Why did they decide to still put it out? Was it one of those things like it had already gone to press by the time she was stepping down? I guess so. It's a sunk cost. And it does have a sort of a sort of a weird novelty value to it. I've bought it hasn't arrived yet. The book's only just come out on ebook, but I've bought a hard copy issue as that I'm gonna give to someone for Christmas. I haven't made up my mind yet. It's perfect sort of useless secret Santa holiday fair. Well, I mean, for me the as you write so revealingly in your stories week, I mean the headline is for me, Liz Trust even weirder than we thought she was, right? I mean, what's revealed in here, in her own words, that she's weird, but... Yes, yeah, yeah, she says. It's shocking. It is shocking, right? Give us the highlights of, of what we've learned in this book. By her own admission, when she was thinking about running for prime minister, she invited a friend to her house and she said, I think I'd make a good prime minister. There's only two problems. I'm weird and I haven't got any friends, which is, I mean, self-aware, if nothing else, especially towards sort of 
not the end because the end is suddenly the rewritten end of the book is just her catastrophic explosion but sort of as she's climbing up through the ranks of office when she becomes foreign secretary for example she kind of it reads like she's sort of seduced by the power of it all she develops she's got a rider like kiss or a rock band would have that she hands out to dignitaries before she goes and visits them to make sure they've got the right type of coffee that's served in the right type of cup and the right type of wine in the hotel in her hotel room afterwards and she sort of has this obsession with instagram that is it's unlike any other politician i think especially in this country she has a personal photographer who at least on one trip to america cost i think it was it was over a thousand pounds just to sort of tag along just taking pictures like you would if you were on holiday. You cite two quotes from the book from Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's <laughs> former chief advisor, which, listening to what you've just said, kind of sum up how her colleagues saw it, but also my own reaction to hearing what she says. Can you just quote those for us? He said that she's as mad as a box of snakes, Cummings said, and as close to properly crackers as anyone else he's ever met in Parliament, which is... <laughs> I mean, Dominic Cummings is a man with an axe grind, but it makes sense. Stu, enough with the gravitas. Let's talk about the diet. What does this woman eat? My attention was piqued by the reports of her diet. Tell us. It's primarily coffee. One of her aides said as she drinks 42,000 cups of coffee a day, which I th possibly is an exaggeration, but who knows? Towards the end of the book, there are so many anecdotes that begin with she had been up all night drinking espressos. And I think she was just a, a huge jittery mess. There was on her rider, one of the points on her rider was no mayonnaise on anything ever, which is a very deaverish demand, I think, because that's it's, it's kind of easy to avoid that. And no fruit for breakfast as well. That was another one. I wonder what was behind that. I've got no idea. She lives like a, a college student, I guess, who just likes trying to cram for an exam. There's no sort of fibre. I'm worried about her. I hope now she's got time to herself, she can get some vegetables or something. Oh, boy. Well, so, Stu, this was supposed to go out to the party faithful just in time for Christmas. What do you think is the fate of this thing ultimately now? Well, I think I had a look on Amazon this morning, and it's not doing as badly as I thought. I think the novelty value is kind of keeping it up. And also, both of the authors have got large platforms. One writes for The Sun, one's the political editor of The Sun newspaper, and the other is high up at The Spectator. I can't remember his exact role. But last week, he had this big feature in The Spectator saying that the headline was, will anybody buy my wildly out-of-date Liz Truss book? So they're clearly gunning for the notoriety of it being an enormous failure. As well, the book probably will become sort of a, I don't know, just a sort of a landmark of what happened to us. The fact that a prime minister came and went quicker than a novelty book. Some kind of version of people who get married. And by the time the photographs come back from the wedding, they've already separated and filed for divorce. And it's like, oh, I remember that day. Wow. What was I thinking? It's crazy. That's exactly it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of what was I thinking going on. I think one day there'll be a very, very good book written about the last sort of six months in British history. It will put it in context better. And yeah, like it's writing a history of a nuclear bomb within the blast radius of a nuclear bomb. That's what this book is. Well, yeah. A nuclear bomb with its core being made up of 42,000 espressos. <laughs> She bought an espresso machine that every time there was a cabinet reshuffle, some poor stooge, some poor civil service stooge would have to cart this enormous espresso machine to a new office. That's how deeply coffee is ingrained within her personality. You know what, though, Stu, at least if you do read this book, you're going to win a quiz night at the pub. Yeah, there will be pub quiz questions about the title of this book because it's this is the third title it's had. It was out of the blue. I think it, the first one was The Astonishing Rise of Liz Trust. 
And then everything started to go wrong. So the publishers changed it to the explosive rise of Liz Trust. And then when she resigned, they had to write and fall at the end of it. So it's the astonishing, unexpected rise and fall now. It is astonishing. And to go back to your quote you mentioned earlier from her, where she says, like, I think I'd make a very good prime minister. I have two problems. I'm weird and I have no friends. So politics is made up of sociopaths who see past their own problems. But how does she still think that she's going to do this? And does the book give any sense of what really drives her? No, not at all, really. It's just that sort of political drive for power, that sort of weird, empty ambition. When she was a teenager, she was very left-wing and she switched at university. She switched over to the Conservatives. But even then, when she was a Liberal Democrat candidate, that wasn't really rooted in any sort of ideology either. That was just like she enjoyed the game of it rather than sort of wanting to change anything. It's a symptom of something, I think. She's a symptom of something. As to what that is, Stu, we'll have to talk about that on another show. <laughs> yes, let's. Stu, thank you so much. Not only for this column, but just for being you. Cheers, Stu. Aren't you jealous that I live in the same country now as Stu? <laughs> I'm jealous of you for so many reasons, Ashley, not just that reason. It's that. It's my lingering bronchitis. I know. I got it. I wish I could say that this is the last we'll be hearing from Stu. He'll probably be back next week again. I'm sorry. That's just the way this country works. There's always something new to talk about. Okay, Michael, on to happier matters. Now that we've talked about something serious, we have to talk about something superficial. Maybe it's not superficial, actually. It's the trend of accountability coaches. Now, these are people that you hire when you want to lose weight and they make you feel kind of guilty when you're going to reach for a huge plate of pasta. Linda Wells has investigated this trend and she's here to tell us all about it. Linda was the founding editor of Allure magazine where she worked for 25 years. And now we are very fortunate to have her here in the airmail universe. Welcome, Linda. Now, Linda, I know that you have plenty of self-control, but for those of us who don't, it turns out we are able to rent it. What exactly is an accountability coach? So you can pay somebody to basically check in with you all the time and tell you what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right in terms of your eating and your drinking and your workouts and sleep. And so it's a human being who's going to kind of be a voice in your ear or someone on your shoulder telling you to behave correctly, an angel on your shoulder for a very large price. How large of a price is that? Yeah. First of all, what's the price? Well, the people I spoke with, the two coaches, one was Sarah Raggy Wellness and the other one was Teddy Mellencamp of All In by Teddy of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fame. They have a starting rate of $3,000. Teddy's is less expensive, but it really is dependent on how long you use the person, how often you communicate, and they'll text you at all hours of the day and night. If you're traveling or you wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly decide that you want to eat ice cream or any of these variables. So I spoke with one man, a private equity banker who lost 65 pounds and he estimated that he spent $50,000 and added that it was worth every cent. Someone who's mathematical could figure out what that is per pound, but that would not be me. <laughs> now, my first thought when I read her column was, can't you just get a judgy friend to do this for you for free? But that's friendship abuse. I now know. But I mean, really, what kind of expertise do these people have that gives them the ability to charge these fees to give this advice? The ones that I spoke with don't have particular expertise in terms of, I think they may have taken courses in coaching or they've had coaches, but they employ registered dietitians, nutritionists, trainers, executive chefs to go in and remake people's lives. And then they also recommend you have to talk to a doctor first, so they're not entirely irresponsible. But I think what they are are like, like a very enthusiastic, non-judgmental, 
professional coach, like an athletic coach, who's really on your side. You can tell them everything. They don't want you to lie. They won't judge you. And then they'll just steer you to the right path. So if you go off path, they'll get you back on it. So if you have a martini the night before, they'll say, here's what you do this morning. It's the evolution of having a personal trainer, which for many people becomes this combination psychotherapist, rabbi, lover sometimes. And like now you've just got this other sort of extension of that to someone who like you basically pay them to be there all the time, which is, as Ashley said, that's better than a friend because a friend won't even be there all the time. But now if you're paying them, they have to be there, right? Right. And I think you're right. It is like a personal trainer, which is why I don't go to personal trainers anymore because I don't want a psychotherapist, personal trainer, best friend also in my workout. But I think that it is someone who is on your side and wants you to succeed and is very focused on your success and then is constantly giving you advice on how to navigate a menu or what to do when you travel or what to do with your minibar. They'll call the hotel and have them clear out the minibar and all kinds of things. So get your hotel set up with minerals so that you get your all the things that you need when you arrive. So you mean they'll even take out the Pringles? Take out the Pringles. Yeah. Heartbreaking, isn't it? But Linda, I assume that the objective is not that you employ this person forever, right? That you work with them for a specified period of time, you learn some things along the way, and then you go on your merry way. You spoke with two people who had used these coaches. Is that the experience that they had? Yes. And I've also talked to a number of people over the years who've worked with coaches and said, that's the idea. They educate you and it's like a crash course. And then you wean yourself off of them or they wean you off of them. You gain all these abilities that become habits after a period of time of doing this. This has become so ingrained that one person told me that he eats pasta once a year. I'm like, once a year? Really? (laughs) What day would that be? He allows himself to have chocolate cake once a year or ice cream twice a month. So these habits really become ingrained. They are not falling apart and they want this to be a lifetime. And if they slip, then they can always re-engage the coach. So it sounds kind of remarkably effective because we know there is no such thing as real willpower, how difficult it is for diets and workouts to really stick and succeed. And so it seems like a very, very, it's a crutch, no question. It's babysitting, but it's effective babysitting and effective crutch. Okay, Linda, someone people who could afford it. You've seen a lot of these weight loss techniques come and go. Not like you've ever tried to lose weight. I'm sure you never have. But have you done anything truly psychotic that you're willing to share with us in the name of weight loss? Yes. I mean, I've done so many psychotic things. Where do I begin? But there was a doctor that I went to and he might have been in Queens somewhere. I knew it was far. It was someplace I was unfamiliar with. And he put a staple in my ear and you were supposed to press the staple and then one day you'd drink like four glasses of milk and that's all. And then the next day you'd have some other bizarre food group. I mean, I've really done every crazy thing that can be done and it worked, but I wasn't healthy. I can guarantee you that. What I liked about some of this expert advice, one of these coaches said something like, if you're going to go all out one night, Pick two of the three, the three being, what was it? Carbs, alcohol, and sugar? Carbs, alcohol, and sugar. Well, that seems like sensible advice. Totally, totally. Those are the things that you can really manage. Or they also say, don't drink wine because wine begets wine. And we all know, you know, you're sitting at a dinner party and the glass seems to constantly be full. How does that happen? And suddenly you leave and you think, wow, how many glasses with that? Well, that was one glass of wine I had, but it was never emptied. And so they, their idea is go with hard alcohol, both because you have a sense of how much you're getting, but also because it has less sugar. So it's not filling your body with all kinds of sugar. And they love tequila on the rock 
rocks. And if you ever run into a friend who's suddenly a switch from whatever they used to drink to tequila, you can be pretty sure you can trace it back to one of these coaches. <laughs> I love it. Well, this is a wonderful story, Linda. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Have a wonderful week. See you soon. Okay. Thank Bye. you, Linda. Bye. You know a good way just to lose some weight, Ashley? I mean, I do, Michael. Whether I choose to implement those things is another story, but tell me. A little exercise. You've got the lead in on this, which is with your friend Liberty Ross, right? You're so right, Michael. All I really need to do is strap on a pair of roller skates and all my problems will be solved. Liberty Ross is a known quantity to those of us in the fashion world. She began her career as a model. She has revitalized one of the coolest brands of the 1970s, Flippers Roller Boogie Palace. This was a roller rink that her father founded and it operated for only two short years in Los Angeles from 1979 to 1981, but it has loomed large in the collective imagination of that city ever since. And Liberty has brought it back first in New York City at Rockefeller Center, which you've probably heard us talk about on the show before because we love it. And now it is coming to London, White City, in fact, and its grand opening is on November 11th. Liberty is here to tell us all about what happens when you put on roller skates and change your world. Welcome, Liberty. Okay, Liberty Ross. First of all, for those who are not familiar, tell us exactly what Flippers is, what it was, and what it is today. All right. So Flipper is my father. He is called Flipper because when he was 17 years old, he had a very serious car accident on a country lane in England and broke his leg pretty severely. He cannot roller skate, but has always been very intrigued by the culture of roller skating, probably as a result of not being able to do it himself. So Flippers is a roller boogie palace. In 1979, my parents moved us all. I was their fifth child and named Liberty because they knew they were about to move to America. They moved us all out and opened Flippers Roller Boogie Palace, which was inspired by a rink that my father had visited in New York just prior called the Empire Roller Drum. So he just felt like what he saw was so impactful and the music and the culture and the outfits and the style could literally save the world in his opinion and he just felt like this has got to exist elsewhere so he opened flippers with his friend denny cordell who he'd been in partnership with when they'd done the radio caroline which was the first pirate radio station ever on a ship off the coast of england and every single day since, literally to today, I have met people with a smile and the most incredible story about their experience at Flippers. So I did a lot of kind of research on why do people still talk about Flippers 40 years later? And what I came to discover was just so sort of inspiring and dense and sort of culture and community and the most incredible photographs I'd seen. So... I made a book, which I did with Idea Books. We launched it last October during Freeze London. We had an incredible night at Dover Street Market London. And then we did a skate rave shortly afterwards in the building, which is now where Flippers London will live. And I was so inspired by the community in London as well. So I, to me, skating today is obviously very different to, I think, skating that people think about. I think in general, when people think about roller skating, they naturally think of nostalgia in the 70s and disco balls, which really couldn't be further from what skating is today. It's really a movement and it's a lot of the rinks have shut down 
across America, which is devastating, but it's really made people skate on the streets a lot more and in parks and outdoors. So to me, I'm on a small little mission to save rink culture because it's a very important culture. And it's so important, I think, particularly after the pandemic, obviously, to bring people together again. So I'm really thrilled that Flippers has been able to sort of catch that wave of uniting people together. You kicked off the Flippers resurgence in New York at Rockefeller Center. Your rink there is open from April to October. So we're sad to say it's been replaced by ice skating for the time being. We'll be back in April. Why did you decide? I mean, obviously, you have this incredible history with London. You spent so many formative years there. But Why London next? Why not Los Angeles? And do you have any plans for Los Angeles? London will always be my home. Obviously, I've always kind of straddled both Los Angeles and London, but I feel like a Londoner. And because they've never really had that same culture of rink, I am very keen to try to bring that to London in a really sort of serious way, I guess. I mean, I think if we can encourage youth to get into flippers and learn to skate and have a healthy hobby. That's my ultimate goal. I'd love to kind of bring kids who don't have much to do after school. I'd like to bring schools in. I just think that it's a very sort of positive habit, hobby for anybody to embrace. How old are your kids, Liberty? My children are now 16 and just turned 18. So are they skaters? They are skaters. We actually turned our garage into a rink during the pandemic. So (laughs) we had a lot of fun and continue to have a lot of fun as a family skating together. That's one of the most wonderful things about roller skating. You can be any age, but to be able to have a fun sport that you can all do together is just really, really great. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the experience that we can expect when we come to your rink in London. I know music is a big part of what you do. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so at the original Flippers, my parents had people like Prince perform his Dirty Mind tour. The Go-Go's were a regular house band. My dad brought a lot of the British punk bands over to play in Hollywood. So we intend to do the same. I love the idea of having emerging acts and supporting kind of young DJs and local talent as much as we can. So there'll absolutely be a large live scene going on there. All right. Well, I'll be at your opening party next week, but I'm struggling already with my outfit. What are you wearing? (laughs) I am struggling too. I have not found my outfit yet. (laughs) Probably, I don't know. I need several because we've got quite a few opening nights, but something you can skate in and something fun. Skating is all about self-expression. So whatever makes you feel best is what you should wear. All right. Consider that a challenge, Liberty. I'll do my best. (laughs) Good luck. Awesome. All right, Liberty, thank you so much. Congratulations. I love this. It's such an amazing vision that you have and so creative. All right. Well, Michael, before we go off into this good weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. As you noted at the top of the show, auction season is upon us. And right now there is a preview of what promises to be a blockbuster. On November 9th and 10th here in New York City, Christie's will auction off the collection of Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. I was fortunate enough to get a private walkthrough of it the other night, and I have to say it's astounding. It includes more than 150 masterpieces spanning 500 years of art history, 
and includes groundbreaking pieces by Francis Bacon and Cezanne, as well as a rarely seen work by Georges Seurat. Valued in excess of $1 billion, the collection is poised to be the largest art auction in history, and some of these works will never be seen in public again. So, if you're here in the city, hustle over to Rockefeller Center this weekend to get a look. And you, Ashley? Have you seen All Quiet on the Western Front yet on Netflix? I have. It's quite good. What did you think? Well, for listeners, it's in German. It's a German production, correct? Sort of from that perspective a little bit, but it's with what's going on on the Eastern Front right now with Ukraine and Russia. It's sort of hard for me not to watch it and feel some sort of echoes of here we are 100 years later with another war in Europe. But I thought it was, I can say, beautifully done and very powerful. Yeah, I agree. So this is a film version of Eric Remark's seminal novel. It takes place in 1917. It tells the story of what happens when young boys go off to war. And I think we're going to leave it at that. Many people have read this book already, so they have a sense of the plot line. But aesthetically, it was extraordinary. I thought the cinematography was really beautiful, even though it was showing some really horrifying things most of the time. Not an especially pleasant place to occupy yourself, mentally speaking, because it was. It just reminds you of all of the horrors of World War One that you have read about so many times and seen in different film adaptations. But I just found this extremely powerful. And I think of all of the movies that have been made about World War One. I thought it did an incredibly visceral job of reminding us of how brutal and savage it was. Yeah, I would. It's not a light movie to, to watch, but I think it's one of those films that it's important to see, and it's a good drama, beautifully shot, as you said. A perfect film for a rainy Saturday afternoon. All right, well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.